Welcome in, everyone. Um, I am your host, Mark Real, and it is Thursday, August 12th, 2021, and welcome to State of the Family Courts. Uh, so tonight we have a very special guest um, hailing from the state of Washington. Um, we have Sean Kohlmeyer. So, Sean, uh, thank you for joining us. How's the weather up in Seattle? Well, uh, so thanks for having me. Um, we're having a heat wave today. So uh, we had a, actually we had a heat wave in about a month ago that made you know international news. Now we're having the next the next one. Sixth heat wave this summer. Okay, awesome, awesome. So like we do every single week, we uh, go ahead and we hop right into the state specific. Uh, laws, and I always, uh, I always will cite the NPO's uh, scorecard, and uh, the state of Washington falls squarely in the middle. So the state of Washington grades out as a C on the NPO's scorecard. Um, so the what they cite in the state of Washington, um, essentially the negative is there's no statutory preference or presumption for shared parenting. So that's kind of the biggest, the biggest negative um, in the state of Washington. What has been your experience in the family courts in the state of Washington? Well, um, so first of all, um, in preparation for this podcast, I um, went and read that, that article. And I watched several of your podcasts. And um, I would, I would give Washington State um, less than C, um, maybe not, probably a D. Um, particularly with uh, the new uh, laws that have just been passed in Washington about abusive litigation, it's going to get a lot worse. Um, my case um, is ultimately going to challenge those laws, and if, so if I lose, it's it's not good for fathers in in Washington. Um, uh, I'm I'm actually not a family law attorney. I'm I'm becoming a family law attorney, um, whether I like it or not. Um, I'm a personal injury attorney. I'm um, um, I'm a bicycle attorney. Most of my clients are bicyclists who've been hit by cars. Uh, so what I've learned about family law is through um, living through this, um, what I affectionately call a hell ride of a nightmare, um, uh, high conflict divorce for the last four and a half years, fueled by what I believe is um, the most unethical attorney I've ever seen in um, about 15 years of practicing law and um, practicing personal injury law, fighting with insurance companies over money. Uh, so um, that's been my experience with family law. So I can only speak to a certain extent of what I've learned through my research and through what I've learned through my own case and through what I've seen through it because I'm not a, a practicing family law attorney here yet. Yeah, so we, we should. So Sean and I, I guess we, we kind of uh, learned the ropes in family law the, uh, the same way, ended up in the system ourselves, and uh, it spits you back out a different person, as I'm sure a lot of our viewers feel the, uh, the same way. So the, one, the major reason and the main topic that um, I wanted to talk to Sean about tonight was uh, his work um, on his new website, Unethical Karma dot com and dealing with unscrupulous family law attorneys. So, Sean, I, I want to turn it over to you first and walk me through what the website is, what it does, kind of what its purpose is and what its value will be. 
So my website does um, a, a couple of things. So like I said, um, uh, like I said, my my ex-wife's attorney is I, in, in my personal opinion, uh, and my professional opinion as an, as a practicing attorney, um, is easily the most unethical attorney I've ever seen in my life. Um, I know she's not the worst case, and I know she's not the worst example. I know that there are um, other unethical bad apple attorneys that are in a commensurate sort of group with her, but the sorts of things that she did in 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 uh, our divorce, uh, you know, were things like um, endemic dishonesty, lying, forging of court orders. Um, uh, bald-faced lying to the judge um, when she had clear, actual knowledge that she knew that she was lying. Um, uh, presenting false evidence. Um, making, making allegations against me that were um, clearly unethical because they were not well-grounded in law and fact. Um, uh, engaging in a series of behaviors that I believe um, abused and manipulated her own client, um, massively over litigating the case, charging her her own client um, at, at last count over two hundred and sixty four thousand dollars, more than sixty percent of my ex wife's total net worth, um, to accomplish literally nothing. Um, it, when I say that she is the uh, bad apple example attorney, um, I'm not alone. Um, hopefully, we'll put together another podcast about this, and um, we'll be able to talk maybe to some other victims of hers. Um, but she's been at this for years, and um, the problems that are endemic in my case and that are endemic in, across the board that you see in, in lots of high-conflict cases... Um, you know, were really fueled by her unethical behavior. So my website is uh, largely, um, the, the goal of it is to teach other people how to a, um, avoid some of the mistakes that you're going to find. But, but, then, but there's plenty of people that are out there doing that. So for instance, Greg Ellis has just come out with a very interesting and good book. Um, where he's talking about his experience as um, responding to a hostile, you know, high conflict family law case. And I've read his book. Very, it, it's good stuff. Um, but, you know, there are pieces of this puzzle that are missing for other for other pieces and uh, for other. There are there are each one of these people is taking a different piece of the puzzle and they're putting it forward. And, and one of the pieces that's missing is talking about. Um, a, what do you do when you when you find yourself in the position where um, you believe that uh, counsel is acting unethically? And I mean beyond beyond the the idea that they're making allegations that you know you might be able to justify by by facts, or they're making allegations that might be in line with your with your ex wife or your soon to be ex wife or soon to be ex husbands. Um, uh, beliefs based upon you know some facts. Um, what do you do when you when you when you realize that opposing counsel is unethical? How do you how do you find out 
um, the what's potentially in store for you and to keep you out of trouble. And um, and if you do come to the realization that they're engaging in unethical behavior, how do you research and write bar complaints that will ultimately get the attention of um, a bar association? Not necessarily to come along and and discipline or dis disbar your your um, opposing counsel, but at least to create an investigation that gets treated seriously. Because the, the vast majority of, of bar complaints that are filed by opposing parties, um, you know, get briefly looked at and go straight into a straight into the tr the proverbial trash can, um, and to a large extent because people don't know how to write bar complaints, people don't know how to um, marshal the evidence and apply it to the rule. So, so that's 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 and and then the other piece of the puzzle is um, uh, for my website is to a go public about what's happened to me and um, the uh, atrocity that's been committed to, you know, me, my ex-wife, our son. Um, I haven't seen my son in um, uh, just over two years. And the court is uh, asleep at the switch about that. Um, and then sort of the third piece of the puzzle is to deal with some of these um, due process issues that are, that are coming up because of this um, abusive litigation um, statutes that um, Tennessee passed one in 2019, Washington passed one and started in 2020, which are just a disaster of constitutional law and drafting, uh, a statutory drafting. So they're, they're real problems. Um, and if they stand, it's going to be um, a, additional problems for um, uh, fathers and, and the 20% and the of other alienated parents that are mothers. Um, that are going to be additionally abused by that. So that's the purpose of it. Sort of threefold, you know, threefold: going public about my story, teaching people how to um, avoid some of these pitfalls, um, and uh, talking about these uh, co important constitutional issues in my new case in the Court of Appeals. Awesome, awesome. So let's start out with with one of those kind of the three things you mentioned there: um, the pitfalls when when going through. Whether it be, I think it's a very thin line between litigating hard and, and acting unethically, um, because opposing counsel can be tough. Opposing counsel can be hard nosed and still be ethical. My opinion uh -huh. in family law, I think uh, collaboration is is a huge piece that attorneys should attempt to foster. Some don't. So, um, share. You can share this what you want, kind of about your story. And then what pitfalls specifically are you talking about and how can men avoid them? Okay, so why don't we, that's a, that's a great one. Let's just start right in with my story. But before we get to that, okay? So I'm reading from my beat up copy of the Washington Rules of Professional Conduct, okay? So I'm literally doing what I suggest that every person do. Now this is, this is what RPC 3.3 candor towards the tribunal reads. It says this, a lawyer shall not knowingly make a false statement of fact or law to a tribunal or fail to correct a false statement of material fact or law previously made to a tribunal by the lawyer. Okay, so that that rule, that rule literally means lawyers cannot lie. Okay, now the previous rule, RPC 3.1 says, 
A lawyer shall not bring or defend a proceeding or assert or controvert an issue therein unless there is a basis in law and fact for doing so that is not frivolous, which includes a good faith argument for the extension, modification, or reversal of existing law. So those two rules read together, RPC 3.1 and RPC 3.3, which are modeled on the federal rules of, of, um, of professional conduct, and every state in the union has some version of that. So for instance, Texas renumbers these things and they come up, you know, it's like 3.03 or something like that. But the core language, every state has them. All yep. 54 jurisdictions, including the Virgin Islands and Guam and all of those other places. Okay. So that literally says two things. One, a lawyer can't lie. Two, a lawyer has a responsibility to investigate the claims that are brought to them by their own client. So when your client walks in, and, and, and then the, the third piece of that is, is their investigation is tied to the seriousness of the issue. So someone walks into your door and, 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 they've, got a, and they've got a really minor issue and it's not, it's just a minor issue, we'll just say that. We've got a minor issue, your, your reasonable investigation, ethical responsibilities are commensurately low. You you have you you do have the right to rely upon your client and the idea that they may be telling you the truth. But when someone walks into your door and they're making very serious allegations, your your responsibility to investigate the factual basis of those allegations rises. And what we see and what we what happened in my case, and I knew these things were false because I lived these experiences, and then later on, um evidence would come out that conclusively proved that, that these things were false. In, in, uh, what you see in, across the board, case after case after case, Greg Ellis was talking about it, you know, um, a few weeks ago to, to your colleague, right? That these unscrupulous, bad apple, unethical lawyers, they come in and they make all of these allegations based upon what their client tells them. Now, that can be based upon what their client tells them because their client A, honestly believes that, or B, can also be because the lawyer has manipulated what their client believes and helped them come to a false belief about situations. All right, I'll come back to that in just a second. So in my case, what happened was my ex-wife and I, um, whom I still care about a lot, and my perspective on it is, is that she has been manipulated and abused by her own attorney and she has no and she i don't know if she has no idea but i don't think she really has a, a real firm grip on how badly she has been screwed over by her own attorney okay in my case my ex-wife went to a law firm that advertised itself as a cooperative law firm that advertised itself as saying what we do is we help you preserve your relationships when possible. And when you and when when that does not work, our experience in the courtroom, right, and our ability to listen to you and be patient with you and with opposing counsel will often help you preserve your family relationships and move forward in life with a settlement. So that's how they advertise. So my wife goes in, she, you know, we're having issues right but we don't hate each other right you know we need we need some sort of change my wife has has my ex-wife now has 
convinced herself that she's going to get screwed over because I'm an attorney. Okay? I had no intention of screwing her over. Right? I, I still wouldn't screw her. She could pick up the phone and call me today and say, Sean, let's bring this issue to a close. Let's find a solution to it. Right? And I would still say I'm happy to do that. And I have no intention of screwing her over. But she goes in there because she's worried about that. But, you know, the initially the lawyer that she initially hires, and this is sort of the way a divorce firm works. So I'm going to take you a little bit behind the curtain and tell you how the, the practice of, of, of uh, a divorce firm works. The uh, attorney that she initially hires, it's a, it's, she's an associate and attorney, so she, and she's new. She hasn't, been a, she hasn't been an attorney for very long, but this is like her first real serious job. She sits down. I don't know what she said to her, but she said some variant along the line of my my husband and I have split up. You know, uh, she says either I want a divorce or I don't want a divorce or we're trying to figure things out. I, I don't know exactly what it is she said to her, but I know there were some of the things that she must have said to her. And um, and then she says, you know, we've been working on this parenting plan together. Um, he moved out several months ago. He got an apartment. We've been sharing our child 50 50 right? We're generally getting along. We're going to family events. I want to put into writing uh, a, a clear parenting plan and then, you know, figure out where we're going to, what, what, what our next step is. So initially that's exactly what our attorney does. Now, when you, when you're, if, if we want to start the, the firm of, of Dewey, Cheatham and Howe, right? You know, and it's going to be, it's going to be Colmeyer and real. We screw over families divorce law. All right. One of the ways that we'll do that is we'll set the firm up. We'll create this advertising that we're cooperative, that we want to work with each other. And we'll hire a bunch of associate attorneys and we'll tell those associate attorneys that when people come in and they want divorces, help them get divorces, right? Help them work on their documents. If they've, if they've got a functional relationship, that's fine. Keep working. But these are the things you want to look for. You want to look for see, you know, you want to look for these couple of things. You want to see, you know, are they relatively high earners, right? How much money do these people make? What do they got in assets? What is the nature of the conflict between them? All right. And is, and is, are those four things together? Is the conflict between them ripe to become worse? Okay. And then those associate attorneys effectively act as conflict finders for the other attorneys, the senior attorneys in the firm, who will then come in and turn the case into a high conflict nightmare mess. And let's stop there. Let's stop happened. there. What does a good firm do, though? Let's let's stop there for the for the viewers. What does a good firm do? So my my kind of line to clients is: I hope I can resolve your case prior to even using all of your initial retainer. In reality, parents agree on the vast majority of things, and what causes these cases to become high conflict a lot of times are issues that really don't matter to either party, and so if each of you have a good ethical attorney, that attorney's job early in the case needs to be to work with the other one to find common ground and to build that relationship and knowledge of your client that when it's something that they're just being petty about, you have the ability to kind of lay on them and say, does this really matter? And you get these mm -hmm. issues over with. Um, right. That's what a good ethical attorney is going to do. Mm -hmm. And 
so I don't want to jade everyone. There are a lot of good attorneys that I work with day in, day out that, Mm -hmm. hey, if I go lay on my client and get them to agree to this because I don't think it really matters to them or they've said it doesn't matter, but I need you to get this for me. And Mm -hmm. we can go do that. And then all of a sudden we're able to come together and be in front of a judge maybe one, two times, get it over with. They're out the door less than $10,000 in attorney's fees and they're on to the next chapter of their life. Right. That's, That's what a good lawyer and law firm does. Right. That's called client control. And there's a there's a fine line between client control and client manipulation. Right. But that's exactly what that is. Right. I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, telling your client that's not ethical. I'm not going to do those things. Right. You know, this is ethical. Right. You know, do you really want to fight about that? Do you really want to pour napalm onto a fire? Right. Um. So, OK, so in my case, so what happened was, was that. Um, my ex-wife and I actually reached an agreement. We um, we reached an agreement on an agreed final parenting plan. Her first attorney sent it to me as an offer of settlement. I said, I accept. Now meet the obligations that you said that you were going to, um, that you agreed to in mediation. And at that point, the um, associate attorney, the conflict finder, brought in their big dog who is um, locally known as the queen of DV, always alleges DV. And they had a, um, a consultation with my ex-wife. I, I don't know what they said, but I, you know, I can, I can rebuild a lot of things that they said. And one of the things that, that, uh, that must've been discussed was this idea that if you sign this document, you're going to have to actually parent your child with Sean. You're going to share him 50, 50, um, and, and here's the key. And, and, and I think this is really important because this argument gets flipped all the time. And, um, uh, and what she also must have told her was, is that you, you won't get anything in child support. You, you won't, you know, there will be, you know, no child support or it will be negligible because both of you earn roughly the same amount of money and you're sharing the kid 50, 50. Well, that's all my ex-wife wanted. My ex-wife wanted, you know, power control. She wanted to be able to, you know, be in charge of the how to raise the child. And, you know, she wanted me to pay her a bunch of money. And so um, uh, opposing counsel must have told her um, some variant of, well, the way that you get all of these things that you want is to allege domestic violence. Just like, you know, what happened to Greg Ellis's, um, you know, ex-wife. Uh, same thing, you know, so, um, and, and I don't know if, I don't know if she just flat out told my ex-wife to just lie about domestic violence or if she warped my ex-wife's thinking so that she came to believe that, that she was a victim of, of domestic violence, which is possible, right? Yeah. But either way, next thing we know, they come out of the gate. And they um, accuse me of everything other than, you know, like I, I like to say, other than stealing the kitchen sink, you know, domestic violence, child abuse, fabrication of evidence, assault, battery, perjury, tax fraud. I mean, they just they just literally they just throw everything into this motion. My ex-wife breaches our 50-50 agreement, seizes our kid. They file this motion that says that I'm this horrible person. They do it based upon saying that the, that our kid's therapist says that our kid wants less time with me and that the time that he has with me isn't good, which we will eventually find out as a complete lie because the shrink that I get to go see 
interviews the therapist and the therapist comes in and the therapist says, no, I never said that. All of that came from mom's head. You know, so I had no idea about any of that. I never said any of that. So, you know, immediately I realized, you know, holy crap, opposing counsel is unethical. Um, because, you know, I lived these experiences and I, I knew, you know, these things just did not happen. And, and I knew also, not only did I know that these things did not happen, but I also knew that my ex-wife, soon to be ex-wife, knew that some of these things did not happen as well. So, you know, if she sat down in the, in the, you know, in, in the chair and she tells her, she tells her new attorney, Sean did X, Y, Z, blah, 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 whatever, you know, you know, he has this evidence, he has that evidence, it's fabricated, it's fake, it's whatever. I know that she knew that that was a lie. <laughs> and I knew that based upon the seriousness of what she, they were saying, you know, that RPC 3.1 kicked in and the council had an obligation to actually investigate. And because she made these allegations in a motion, right? She didn't investigate. She didn't comply with her ethical responsibilities. And we were off to the races. <laughs> so I, I think I think you made some really, really good points in there. And, and I think it goes back to what a good family law attorney will do and what a a we'll say bad for lack of a better term or unethical family law attorney will do everyone who comes into my office or any other family law attorney's office there's fear fear of the unknown uh whether it be you were you're getting a divorce when you said i do you never anticipated getting a divorce you never anticipated going to family law court if you're unmarried when that child was born you never envisioned having to fight for every minute you're going to get to parent your child. And so there's a there's a level of fear and there's a level of uncertainty. Every state has their their little idiosyncrasies about the family court process. And a layperson is it's impossible to step into into that world and really truly understand what's going on until it's too late. Oh yeah. My biggest thing with all clients is I'm going to educate you on the fundamentals of what the system is and what the system is not. And if both attorneys can do that to their clients, it's going to take them out of that fight or flight mode. Because if you're uncertain, if you're scared, if you don't know what's going on, you're either going to stand up and fight or you're going to run away from it. And when you run away from it, a lot of times that's where you get the DV stuff where things start kind of getting facts get changed in their head. They've ran away from the situation. They tell a story over and over again and things morph. So when you're looking for a family law attorney, not only do you want to look for one that is truly or has a track record of settling things and it not being contentious and not dragging things out, you want someone you feel comfortable with and that is going to educate you on your state systems and your state's policies, procedures, and what will likely happen. Because the more knowledge you have, the more at ease you're going to be. The more knowledge your ex has, the more at ease they're going to be. And when both parties feel more comfortable, that's where it's going to be right for coming to an agreement. Yeah, I, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, though, the, the, the problem with what you're saying is that it's predicated on this idea that you're going to be dealing with two fundamentally ethically uh, ethical attorneys. And I... And 
A, that just has not been my experience so far in, in family law. And I mean, I know there are ethical family law attorneys because I've met many of them, become friends with some of them. Um, but that entire analysis that you just went through just goes out the window when one of those attorneys is one of these high conflict, um, conflict creating, um, unethical bad apple attorneys, because they're going to, instead of educate their client about what they can reasonably expect and help their client come to um, make a decision in their best interest, they're instead going to a manipulate what their client knows and understands B um, manipulate the situation, you know, misuse the rules, misuse the law um, in order to generate conflict because that generates attorney's fees. And yeah, no, I think, and I think that comes back to, and that this really, I guess, isn't for the viewer specifically that comes back to what the, the, those ethical attorneys in the profession are willing to say and do to those bad apples. I, I don't well, think I can mention on air what, what I said in our email today to start out with, but calling out those individuals and putting them out there peer to peer can, can in a lot of instances have an impact. And I think yeah. that transitions really well into bar complaints. You mentioned with unethicalkarma.com, one of the one of the tools is going to be educating individuals how to file proper bar complaints. So we'll mm -hmm. start out. Um, what does the bar do, and then how do bar complaints impact attorneys? Let's let's uh, we'll do that. Let's let's do that in in the context of an actual example. So um, you're in California. Yep. Um, and I'm sure you're probably pretty aware of the of what's going on with Attorney Giraldi. In Los Angeles? Yes. Okay. So he was the um, Aaron Brockovich attorney, um, had an illustrious career. He's 80 some odd years old now. Um, he's married to a woman that's uh, 30 years or so younger than him and uh, a star on Real Housewives of, of Beverly Hills. Um, he's uh, made, made millions of dollars through the course of his legal career. And um, a couple of weeks ago, the Los Angeles Times reported that the State Bar of California effectively admitted to corruption because they told the New York, the, the uh, Los Angeles Times that they had mishandled the investigation into attorney Giraldi's um, uh, uh, career because he had had uh, many bar complaints filed against him. Uh, many lawsuits filed against him, many um, reviews, negative reviews about him. But because he was able to uh, capitalize on his star power and his um, connections that he built within inside of the California Office of Disciplinary Counsel, he was able to avoid ever having discipline meted out to him for the exact same things that other attorneys in California got, got um, uh, discipline for. So, um, you know, that, that question about, you know, what is it that bar associations do and, and how do you tackle that problem? Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, one, you have to, you just have to acknowledge that um, some bar associations become corrupt. Um, I think mean, that's just, a, that's just, you know, wherever money can be made, wherever influence can be traded, corruption can follow. And 
Um, but once you step aside that, once you get beyond that, um, then uh, what happens with the bar complaint is, and now I'm, I never worked for the bar association, right? My only experience with bar complaints is um, both having my ex-wife, having my ex-wife, actually my ex-wife's attorney has filed two bar complaints against me. Um, one, one investigation is still open and it's based upon these forged court orders that she had and her ability to try and cover up that, um, that forgery and fraud. Um, and then seeing what's happened with the bar complaint that I filed against uh, against her and the, what I've learned from that process. But initially what happens is uh, a bar complaint comes into uh, the bar association and it, and it gets assigned an initial uh, screener. And, and they look to see, you know, does this, does this just hold together on the inside of the four points of the document? And, and a lot of a lot of bar a lot of grievances just don't go anywhere because they they're nonsensical. Once um, beyond that, then what's supposed to happen is is it is it if there are you know actual allegations um, against an attorney, then the bar association contacts the attorney and says someone has filed a bar complaint against you. Um, you need to respond, and if you you've got X amount of time to respond. And then they go back to the grievant, the person who filed the complaint, with the with the attorney's response and says, "This is what they've said." There's that process goes twice or so, you know, it, evidence goes back and forth if it happens, and then the bar association um, will then make a determination as to whether or not it's going to move forward to a potential review by a disciplinary committee. Um, and then, uh, and then beyond that, then the next step would be uh, sort of like a, a, basically a mini trial on the issue, and then um, you know discipline is meted out or it isn't, um, and then it can be reviewed by um, the Supreme Court in uh, the state that you're in, um, and in in sort of the weirdest twist of of life imitating art, um, uh, what I the best visual that I've seen of that process actually comes from that television show, uh, You Better Call Saul, when um, the attorney Saul gets disciplined. So um, I think, uh, uh, and in opposing counsel's case, uh, I was able to turn up a bar complaint that had been, and, and usually this process is completely confidential, and it doesn't result in, there's nothing public about it, and that's part of the problem. Um, there, now there's there's a reason for it, and there's there's a good side and a bad side to the confidentiality aspect of it. But this process is completely confidential, and none of it becomes revealed until after discipline has been meted out or not. Um, so, um, I was able to turn up a bar complaint that had been filed against opposing counsel um, in 2011 that I actually got from the grievant, and. Um, you know, I was able to even see the Bar Association's dismissal letter and, and, and I'd be able to look at it and analyze it and see, okay, this is why it didn't really get much traction. And, and a lot of it didn't get much traction because, um, you know, the grievance, you know, A, I don't think understand these rules, probably because they haven't read them. So they're just sort of going off the seat of their pants about that feels wrong. And that and the idea that that feeling wrong is a good indicator that you should be reading these rules. But they haven't read these rules and they don't realize how do you take this rule and how do you take this piece of evidence and how do you put the two of them together and hand them to the bar association in a neat package so that they go, oh, here's the rule, 
here's the evidence they broke the rule. All right, awesome. So we're going to cut this conversation in half. So we got to go to a commercial break here real quick. On the back side, we'll talk about how you actually take that, that issue you're seeing and implement it into the rule. You love your children and want them to have everything. How about both parents? Introducing Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. The program is very simple. Sign up, download the app, access services. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program offers access to medical market, telemedicine, mental wellness, medical bill negotiation and advocacy, chronic care, and a wellness savings program with membership add-ons available soon, like prepaid legal services, prepaid college savings plans, prepaid identity theft protection services, and much more. Annual memberships starting at just $35 a month. Here's what our members say about us. You guys are a huge blessing in my life. This community is amazing. I truly thank you for all that you do. Learn more and sign up at www.tfrm.org. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. It's about the children. They're today and they're tomorrow. And welcome back. My name's Mark Real here with Washington attorney Sean Kohlmeyer on State of the Family Courts. So prior to the break there, we were talking about the bar associations, the mechanics of how they work inside, how they impact attorneys. And now we're going to turn to bar complaints. So opposing counsel does something uh, that doesn't feel right. Like that, I think that was the terminology used, like, hey, this doesn't feel right. This shouldn't be happening. Well, I would venture to guess that the majority of complaints that bar associations get are, I feel like this shouldn't happen. So if something like that happens, and let's say you're a pro se litigant, and something like that happens, what steps should you take to ensure your bar complaints taken seriously? Okay, so uh, what I think it's, I think it's even earlier than that. Um, first of all, I've gotten to know some other victims of opposing counsel, and uh, some of whom, you know, one guy was effectively ran out of the state. Um, another guy has um, gone to jail a couple of times. And um, I'm convinced, uh, partially because uh, some of the things that actually happened in my case, I, I saw I saw versions of them ha uh, happen before, including the fact that my ex-wife tried to frame me for uh, uh, restraining order violations. Counsel tried to frame me for a felony weapons violation, which would have which would have required a mandatory prison sentence. Um, uh, I'm convinced that I would that I would be in jail today if if I um, had not done what I'm going to tell everyone to do right now. So even before we get to, you know, printing, going to unethicalkarma.com, looking up your state, finding your your ethical rules for your state, printing them in a booklet, carrying them around, reading them understanding them just as well as you know mark or sean does even before you get to that step what you need to do is you need to start with this um my my opposing every every county so if you're in a large county most most likely if you're in a living a population center you're going to be most likely in a large county most likely the courthouse for your county is going to be where your divorce is going to be filed and and there's will have been 
hundreds of thousands of other divorces in that county. Now, every almost every county is electronic now, but their electronic systems vary greatly. So King County was one of the very first counties to create an electronic filing system. They don't have a system to track cases by by bar number or by uh, by uh, attorney name, but other counties do. Regardless, you're, what you what you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to put together a list of cases that your that that your opposing counsel has been involved in, and then you want to go down to the courthouse and you want to go to the clerk's office and you want to put those cases into the microfiche reader or into the you know PC that they have there. So in King County. It's all, it's all available online, but you can't actually view the documents without paying, you know, 15 cents a page unless you go to the courthouse. And then you're going to want to sit there and you're going to literally read. So you're going to read the entire docket. So, you know, you're going to start with the, with the complaint. So if, you know, Mark, if you and I are married and then we're going to get a divorce um, and you, you file a, you know, you file a summon, a petition for dissolution against me, that's going to be docket number one. When I turn around and file a motion against you, that's going to be docket number two. And you want to start reading the, um, the entire docket record of, of as many cases with your opposing counsel that you can get your hands on. And the very first thing you're going to do in there is, is your, first of all, you're going to look and see how many how many docket filings are there now in a normal divorce because every divorce has two or three legal issues one it's it's a parenting plan in the best interest of the children two equitable distribution of marital assets and three it's if there's actual credible credible issues about violence solving the domestic violence issue it doesn't so it doesn't matter who's divorcing. They all have those same three issues. All right. So if you, it, that that should be resolvable with ethical attorneys with less than a hundred docket filings, just to use a nice round number. It, 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 in reality, it should probably be solvable with less than fifty. Okay, but just to use a nice round number, it should be solvable with less than a hundred filings. Okay. So you're pulling up doc, you're pulling up cases that you know opposing counsel's been involved in, Smith versus Jones, Redneck versus Hillbilly, right? You know, whatever. And you're looking, the first thing you're looking to see how many docket filings are you do you have? When I looked up opposing counsel, I was looking at docket filings in the hundreds of filings. 200, 300, 400, 500. My case, my family law case, is up to over 700 docket filings. And yeah, the funny face you're making right now, everybody, everybody watching this right now, you know, go back three or four, go back 10 seconds and look at the funny face that Mark just made, right? Mark's an experienced divorce attorney, right? And he just made this funny face about the fact that, you know, opposing counsel has got 700 docket filings in her cases. The poor guy that she was able to lock up and get in jail who hasn't seen his kids in like five or six years that I know now, his case is up to 700 docket filings too. That's, that's an attorney that just massively over-litigates something. And then you're going to read them. Tens of thousands of pages of garbage. And what you'll get from that is you will get a blueprint of the behavior that opposing counsel will engage in. And you will also be reading the motion that they file and 
the response to it. And it, and, and then you'll want to do that also for any cases that have gone up to the Court of Appeals. You want to read the briefs. You could stick my name into Google along with Washington Court of Appeals Division One and briefs, and you could pull up the briefs in the two cases that I've had in, in the Court of Appeals so far, and you could go read those, right? You, you want to do exactly that for any case on opposing counsel that you've got so that you get a sense of what it is that you're in for. And, and in that process, you will learn some things. You will learn, you know, how, you know, you know if, if opposing counsel is truly unethical, the criticism being brought against them by their, by their opposing counsels, right, will be consistent. It will be things like, this is false. You know, you're lying, right? You haven't, you haven't complied with your ethical responsibilities to investigate this. But you'll also see tactics in, in, in where what you also see some of the dirty tricks that they'll do. So, it, it, for instance, in, in, my, in my research, I found um, that opposing counsel set a discovery conference with another attorney on one minute's notice and then tried to turn around and get sanctions against them because they didn't make the discovery conference that they only had one minute's notice on, right? Yeah, when I, when I read, when I read um, docket filings, I was reading other attorneys who were complaining about the way that she would treat them on the phone. And then I happened to be in my attorney's office because I hired an attorney once she filed this crazy-ass motion. Um, I was sitting in her in her office, and I was quietly sitting there and I was listening to opposing counsel scream at my attorney on the phone. I mean, uh, unbelievable behavior, behavior I'd never seen. And in, 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 at that time, 13 years of, you know, insurance litigation, the behavior that I, I would never dream of, of doing to opposing counsel. But then when I, I not only did I see it, see her do it to, to my own attorney, but then I saw it inside the docket filings. So it's an enormous amount of research that you have to do, but it's it's absolutely essential if you want to keep out of jail. Yeah, one hundred percent. There, there's a comment here that I think I'm gonna put up on the screen that uh, kind of plays off of of what you you just said. So pro se is always something that gets thrown around for people who can't afford a good attorney, but really a lot goes into it. Lots of core etiquette, weird nuances, stuff that will, will get your case stamped with a big denied if not executed properly. They make it like this on purpose. They do. They there do. There are many. Go ahead. Yeah, they do. So um, she's absolutely. I have no Tabby. idea how to. Miss Custer. What? Yeah. Tabby okay. Custer. Tabby Custer. She's she's absolutely right. Um, I, I call it um, Byzantine. Um because that's really the word. It's 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 this bizarro maze. And so, by the time this happened to me, right, I was I was an experienced litigator. I, I, you know, I I wasn't. I, I don't think I'm the best attorney that's ever walked the planet. I don't think I'm the worst, right? But you know, I'm not a moron, and and I and I have an idea on how to litigate. So uh, you know, and I know how to read the rules. <laughs> so. Well, the time this happened to me, I went off and hired an attorney. So, you know, really her point comes down to a couple of things. Number one, nobody can afford this, right? You know, once you get an attorney, like, you know, this unethical bad apple that's getting involved here, they run costs up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, the total costs, total 
costs actually spent on attorney's fees, professionals, debt generated, and all of that stuff between my ex-wife and me in our, in our case is bouncing just under a million dollars. A million dollars. My ex-wife has billed, billed over $264,000. I've lost over $200,000 in actual money gone, right? You know, $400,000 in lost attorney's fees and damage to my business. I mean, it's it's insane. Nobody can afford this, okay? So lots of people wind up as pro se just because they're just priced out of the world. Now, if, you, if you're an attorney and you've got a head start over those pro se people, you go into this thinking, you know, this can't be that complex. It's still just law. It's still just you know, what we learn in law school, issue, rule, application, conclusion, right? Oh, no, uh-uh, sorry. Not only do you have, not only do you have the, the civil rules, so the standard rules of civil procedure for your state, but then you'll have local county rules for, to, on, on, on local county uh, civil procedure rules. Then you'll have family law local rules, right? And then on top of that, your judge may have their own set of quasi rules that they may have posted on their on their website that you know they may or may not. At one point, my judge who has had a real lack of experience before she took the bench. She'd only been on the she'd only been on the bench for twelve weeks before she got our case. And she had no family law experience before she got there. Okay. But at one point she issues an order. And the order says, you, you have, you know, you violated this, this rule. And I'm reading this order and I take it down to the, um, the self-help uh, uh, office inside of the courthouse, which is staffed with other attorneys. And I'm like, I, I can't figure out what it is she's talking about. So at one point we get we get four attorneys in this room, okay? Four attorneys, and we're we're comparing these three different sets of rules, and we're trying to figure out what is she talking about. She's saying this is violent. We're like, I have no idea what she's talking about. So so <laughs> your point is, and and Greg Ellis made this point in his pod in his podcast, which is that the system is set up to be confusing so that people can't get through it. And even attorneys can't get through it. I mean, I, I, you said this yourself, right? You know, attorneys are like, I don't understand how the hell this is coming down this way. And then in the end, what it really boils down to is, you know, money is more important than kids. Word counts are more important than kids. Procedure is more important than kids, right? You know, doing all of these other things that make that that are not truly important are placed at a higher importance than actually resolving these these issues. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I I had to laugh when you said attorneys don't know. So I I was fr I was fresh out of law school when my own personal case started, mm -hmm. and I was trained to be. I'd worked in the sports industry for six eight years already. And I've been trained to be a labor and employment attorney. Well, in labor and employment law, it's if X and Y happened, then Z is the solution. It's a math equation. It's very black and white, most areas of law. In family law, you operate in this everything's a gray area. There's so much discretion. Um, decisions are made so fast. And I think 
the the attorney the the legal profession at least in family law has moved away from substance to form we want these big fancy briefs we want this looking all pretty um had i had a client this week that i had drafted a brief and and opposing party had like a 30 page brief and i sent over the brief to the client and it was six pages long and they're like, well, well, what's why? Why is theirs like thirty pages and ours is six? Isn't that going to mean the judge is going to be reading their side more? And we walk through it, and it really only needed. I'm like, they threw in all these issues that don't matter. They like you mentioned word count, these big briefs that just are off the mark. And in reality, if we bring it back to okay, what are we really looking at? Like the state of California, the standard for a parent is good enough. That sounds kind of scary. But it essentially amounts to if a parent's good enough, they should get visitation. And we make all these nuanced and complex arguments and these dozens of pages in briefs and 700 docket filings. I I didn't know there were 700 docket filings worth of information that needed to be submitted to the courts. So I think I think just the profession in general, and that's Mm -hmm. something to look at when you're researching. Mm -hmm. Is this person style over substance? Is this person going to talk a good game, show a good game, or are they about the issues? But more importantly than that, I mean, because I'm all about the fact that that these people don't belong in our profession. Well, maybe that's a little too harsh. They don't belong in family law. They belong in big business litigation. That's that's where the sort that's where these sorts of tactics belong. It, it, and and we're not talking, you know, my case you know, or your case or anybody else's family law case is not Microsoft versus Apple, right? These, these sorts of create conflicts, stew it up um, tactics don't belong here. And they're unethical when they're, when they, when they are used. Yeah. And our, our friend, Ted, Ted, you left me on red. We're going to get Ted on the show here soon. Um, but uh, he, he brings up a really good point. Why don't states or circuit courts issue family law practice guides? In Illinois, two-thirds are pro se litigants, probably the same in Washington. They complain about pro se, but they don't provide instruction manuals. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that's a that's a solution that could solve a lot of problems. It's also something that could be disruptive to the legal profession as a whole. California, we are a form-based practice. You don't well, actually have to file any briefs. You don't actually have to do any of that. You can we're, simply we're, utilize forms. We're form based too, and we have and we have an office that assists that assists pro se litigants at least in the three really big counties: um, King, Pierce, Snohomish, probably Spokane. I don't know, um, but but that doesn't help you when you wind up with one of these unethical bad apple attorneys. Um, you know, there's just there's almost like no amount of preparation that will do that. And then, but you know, you brought up something that's really important, and I think maybe we could use that to sort of segue into some of these exhibits that we were talking about. Yeah. Um, you were talking about the discretion, and uh, um, the the there's a there's a real problem in inside of family law that we have uh, vested these judges with. Um, uh, with so much discretion that um, that law and constitutional rights almost mean you know almost nothing because it's up to 
it's it's up to the the decision of a judge who can act as a roadblocker. They can they can in many respects they can do whatever they want. So for instance, we've got a famous Washington State case, um, Troxel versus Granville, which um, you know has great language in it about saying how you know the right to be a parent is a uh, a fundamental a, a fundamental right protected by you know your the Constitution. Well, most you cited know, family law case. I right, think that, that's the one right, everyone absolutely. knows. That's the one everyone's heard. Absolutely great, great, great language. Um, but you know, like for instance, in my case, what I found out is, um, and I don't really want to. What I found out is, you know, a constitutional right doesn't mean squat if you can't get a court to enforce it. If you can't get a court to pay attention to it, to listen to it, right? Doesn't mean anything. Neither does a court order. Court order doesn't mean anything either if you can't get a court to actually enforce its orders. Um, if, if a court comes along and decides that you're the problem and, and it refuses to look at the mountain of evidence that you're putting forward to prove that you're not the problem, um, and they just to say, well, we just don't care. We just don't care. We're just, we're just going to deny you access to the courthouse. We're going to slam the courthouse doors shut on you. You're just you know, screwed with a capital F. Um, and and that problem is going to get worse. So you know, if you want to turn to our, do you want to turn to our yeah. exhibits? We'll we'll, right. we'll flip this up here so we can. Uh... That's that's a nice moment, <laughs> right? So, I, I think I think that is every parent who's experienced parental alienation, yep. and then every single attorney who's trying to build a legal case around it in court. Right. Um, <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's move on to let's skip to um you know baby uh go down the next page. Should I go in here? Oh, it's not. Let me uh I'm on the wrong screen. There we go. Yeah, keep going. So we're gonna go to you're gonna go to the third page. Third page. That's our, that's our outline. I'm gonna have that up on my screen. We're gonna talk about it. Okay. So on the third page, right? So this is Washington State's brand new abusive litigation statute. All right. This is RCW twenty six fifty one. So in my case. Um, after the craziness that I had experienced, so for instance, my ex-wife, you know, filed multiple false police reports against me. I was criminally charged and arraigned for crimes that I didn't commit. Fortunately, you know, um, the cases were dismissed against me, but it cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. My ex-wife has filed at nine frivolous police reports at this point, three of which are clearly false. Opposing counsel effectively tried to frame me for a felony weapons violation in court. Um, my ex-wife uh, tried to do that as well because she tried to ship me a gun safe full of guns. Um, so, you know, anyway. Okay. So um, I eventually, and my, and my, my, her, her attorney engaged in a whole bunch of um, crazy behavior, including wrongful garnishment, forgery of those courts or of the court orders, uh, abuse of process. So, a lot of these things that that happened in my case, there are there are tort claims for. Uh, uh, so if I falsely accuse you of a crime, and you are criminally uh, uh, indicted or tried, and uh, and I know that you're innocent, and uh, once you once you beat those charges, it results either in dismissal or exoneration. You have the um, right to sue me for that. That's that that tort is called malicious prosecution, right? Because uh, I have a responsibility. Once I pick up the phone and call the police and say, "Mark did Mark did X Y Z," 
I have a responsibility at that point in time that if I come to into the knowledge that you are innocent, I have an affirmative duty to uh, inform the police and the prosecutor or my attorney about that. Um, and when I don't, then I face liability for it. So ultimately, after all of this craziness happened in my case, I filed suit against my ex-wife and her attorney. Um, malicious prosecution, uh, abusive process, wrongful garnishment, defamation of character because she's out there telling people that I'm stalking her when I was sitting in my office minding my own business, blah, blah, blah. So I file suit against her and they then move to get my lawsuit dismissed under this brand new statute, which is right here on the screen, um, which is modeled after a Tennessee statute. So. This is Washington State's brand new abusive litigation statute. And the reason why this is going to be so important for um, uh, predominantly fathers, but you know, parents across the country is because this is going to be another wave of litigation that we're going to see from the other side of the, of the camp where they're going to try and come along and say, you know, if you litigate, you are an abuser. So the action of defending yourself in court against against whatever i mean they could be they could be allegations that might be based in fact right or you know they're just being overblown or or you know false allegations in my case right the action of defending yourself is is abusive that's the argument that they make so when you take a look here at the statute all right so first of all when we as as lawyers this creates a fundamental due process issue about whether or not you get access to the courts. Okay, so in Washington State, your ability to sue somebody for something like malicious prosecution or wrongful or wrongful garnishment is actually guaranteed by the Washington State Constitution. Okay, so those are fundamental due process issues. But beyond that, when we get to actually looking at a statute, um, you know, and how is the statute implemented? The Washington statute is modeled very closely on the Tennessee statute, neither one of which have ever been interpreted. And this is going to be the very first case, Colmeyer versus Latour, is going to be the first case to interpret one of these abusive litigation statutes. So it's going to impact law in Washington, it's going to impact law in Tennessee, and it's probably going to impact law across the country. All right. So here they come along and they say abusive litigation is defined as one of these three things, right? So you're an attorney, you look at this and it says, right, so an order entered under this new statute doesn't apply, okay? A parenting plan with restrictions based upon, now that section of the parenting plan, okay, is about is about a history of acts of domestic violence. So they're saying, you know, abusive litigation is, is that when one person is a, is a, the, a victim of DV, they were in an intimate part, partner relationship, right? And, you know, these things happen. So the, 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 person who is filing, instituting, or, you know, pursuing the litigation, right, has been found to have committed domestic violence against the other person, right, do, by these ways. And under B, it is a history of acts of domestic violence. Okay, so if you don't have a history of acts of domestic violence, then B doesn't apply. C, all right, a restraining order entered. Now, here's the, here's the real rub. This is really dangerous. A restraining order issued with specific findings necessary be because of DV. Now, when this bill was debated in the Washington State Legislature, a local divorce um, bar association testified about this, and they said that what they wanted was they were really concerned about the fact 
that a restraining order was going to be enough to preclude you from being able to access the courthouse because restraining orders were often issued A, ex parte, with no notice of the opposing party, all right? B, on a mere preponderance of the evidence standard, very, very low, which is it's even lower than that on restraining orders because judges don't want to get this wrong and wind up with a dead kid on their hand, okay? So this bar, this local bar association, you know, requested that that the standard in the statute be clear and convincing evidence. And that was overridden by the Washington state legislature. So it's not. So it's based upon a, a, a restraining order issued on the very lowest standard of evidence, right? That says that it was necessary due to domestic violence. So the classic example is, you know, uh, and I'm just going to use, you know, the 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 gender the gender stereotypes because it also breaks down this way. Okay, that someone goes into the courthouse and they, you know, and she typically says, "I was a victim of domestic violence. I don't have any evidence of it. It happened behind closed doors. Please believe me. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm afraid." Court issues court issues an order, an ex parte order. Those ex parte orders will often, you know, get converted into a. a a more permanent order um, saying that, you know, um, it's necessary for domestic violence. So when that happens <laughs> and the guy might not even be there in the ex parte hearing, right? When that happens, now you've got a domestic, now you've got a court order that says that domestic violence, that this court, that this restraining order has happened because of domestic violence. All right. So then, so then, so now you're in the, now you're in the neighborhood of like, oh, holy crap. Any litigation that's brought after that becomes abusive. So the next step is that the litigation being initiated or advanced is for the purpose of harassing. So that requires a, requires the judge to crawl inside of the litigant's head and say, oh, I believe that this person is bringing this litigation because they want to harass this other person. That's not what they're supposed to do. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen case law about this in, in California, and I can't believe that it's that different anywhere else. The subjective intent and motivation of a litigant as to why they walk up the courthouse steps is irrelevant to whether or not they have an actual factual basis for bringing their claim. There's a really famous, there's a really famous, uh, uh, U.S. Supreme Court case that, that I read in, in law school. I can't remember the name of it now, but it had this wonderful language in it and said that nobody sues, nobody takes a case to the Supreme Court over $5. Well, right, because it doesn't make any sense, right? You know, well, the person who does that is a person who has an enormous amount of money and that's willing to spend it, and it's because for them it's the principle of the issue. But the subjective intent of the litigant, why they why they want to pursue litigation against someone, is completely irrelevant to whether or not their litigation is is well grounded in fact and law. But this statute and the Tennessee statute gives a gives a judge enormous discretion to say to themselves, "I believe that Mark is bringing this case because he wants to harass Sean, and because I believe." that Mark is the bad guy, I'm now going to label Mark as an abusive litigant and I'm going to slam the courthouse door shut to him. And then 
This, both of these statutes are drifted the same way. Even once you get past that, it's supposed to be, the next step it's supposed to be, is to what is the litigant actually alleging? So do, do their claims have a factual basis in law and fact? Remember what I read from RPC 3.1? We've got a commensurate you know, rule of civil procedure, right? CR 11, which says that we're supposed to make sure that our claims are based in law and fact. That's, that's everywhere in the country. Okay, but so in theory, you could be a, a victim of domestic violence, but you may have done something like, oh, I don't know, file a false police report claiming that your ex-husband is trying to stalk you when he's sitting five miles away here in his office trying to get work done so he can generate money, so he can pay his child support obligations, and you call the police and you tell the police that he was there that causes criminal charges against him, costs him $150,000, then maybe he comes along and sues you. So just, just hypothetical example, right? <laughs> okay, so you, know, you could be a victim of domestic violence maybe, but the claims being brought against you are actually based in something that are something real, like you may have done something like that, or you know maybe you're defaming them in the media. And the problem in these statutes is, if you look at it, right, you know, without the existence of evidentiary support. But there is no test on how a court is supposed to determine what that is. It doesn't tell the court, you must do a factually based analysis about what are the causes of action asserted, the elements in those causes of action, and the evidence being proffered for that, and see if it meets a test. So we have tests for that. I mean, all of us that went to law school Right. We all we took civil procedure and we um, uh, all of us, you know, learned a lot about CR 12, which is which is a which is the federal rule of civil procedure to dismiss a claim for failure to state a claim, meaning that that someone sues somebody else and the facts as they have alleged them don't add up to anything that the court can give you relief for or, you know, that's one standard. That's the CR 12 standard. Or there's the summary judgment standard where you allege something again about someone, and when you want to move for summary judgment, you want to say this issue, once we've applied the facts as we know them and we apply the law to that, only gets one result. Any disputed facts are, are presumed in favor of the non-moving party. It provides a framework and standard for a court to analyze the facts and the evidence and come up with a result. The statute doesn't have that. So the statute gives just enormous discretion to, you know, to a judge who might be a family law judge, who might be infected with bias, who might have their own biases and prejudices at work in, in, in the case to determine whether or not someone is bringing a case against their former partner, basically in good faith or in bad faith. It's, it's incredibly dangerous. So that's what happened in my case. She comes along, she dismisses, she dismisses my my lawsuit against my ex-wife and and her um, attorney. And you know, and now we're going to be moving up to the Court of Appeals. Yeah, that's a uh, that that's something that's a little bit more on the technical side, but could have a just absolutely massive impact. Um, on on fathers' ability to to fight to protect their rights in court, 
Right. Um, any anytime you're losing any of those protections and 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 did the state of Washington, did they have anything prior um, for litigants who maybe were uh, file happy or, or would uh, file excessive lawsuits or did harass people? Was well, there a process? You see, that's that's one of the things that really bugs me about this, which is is that this is literally a solution without a problem. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the domestic violence industry is out there saying there are all of these abusive litigants. And what they do is they say, you know, look at these look at these dads who are fighting really hard and they're litigating constantly. And then they may turn around and they may sue their ex for defamation. OK, and they, they say, well, they sue their ex for defamation. They drag them through the court process. This cost them an enormous amount of money. And that's abusive. But they don't acknowledge that, you know, these unethical bad apple attorneys that are out there that are creating these giant cluster profanities of cases um, and creating conflict and confusion. They're just creating this giant mess and they're manipulating their clients to believe things that may or may not be true. Or their clients are motivated because they want revenge or their pound of flesh or whatever they want. Right. And um they don't acknowledge those facts and they don't acknowledge that that may be the reason why the guy is litigating. So for instance, in my case, my ex-wife has publicly said to people that I'm a narcissistic sociopath, that I am mentally ill, that, <laughs> that I um, abused her, that I subjected her to violence that I did all of these other horrible things, none of which she has a none of which she has a whiff of evidence for, and all of which is defamatory. Now, if I go on to a national podcast and I say Mark Real is a narcissistic sociopath, and the courts have determined that, Mark, what's your what's your remedy for that? If the courts have found that, no, no. If I say that about you. Mark Real is a narcissistic sociopath, which the courts have determined. And let's say that's not true. Okay? The courts haven't you determined that. obviously have access to the courts under right. your state's Right, but no, but, but, I say, but I make that statement, right? So let's, so I make, I make a, a false statement about you. Mark Real is a narcissistic sociopath, and the courts have determined that. And none of those statements are true, right? What is your remedy against me for that? It would be a remedy I could acquire through the courts and, and whatever applicable statutes apply right. and, in the state. And the tort is named what? Defamation, well, right? Defamation, slander, right. whatever. Right. So you would, so you, you know, I'm out there saying these false things about you, right? I'm out there saying, you know, Mark Real is a domestic violence perpetrator. Mark, Mark Real stalked me when you're sitting in your office five miles away. Mark Real did whatever, right? You know, and the remedy for that is, you know, for you to turn around and say, well, you know what? Here's your lawsuit, Sean. You know, you've now made all of those false statements about me. OK, you're going to get to you're going to get to have to prove whether or not they are true or not. And you're going to have to do it in front of a jury. And if you don't like it, tough. You know, you shouldn't have made those false statements about me. That's what defamation law exists for. Right. So <laughs> what's your remedy? You know, when when a court comes along and says, well, we're not going to let you defend your reputation and we're just going to allow these other people to do and say these things about you with impunity. What what's the answer? 
Yeah, no, I, th- I think it goes back to a, a key point that a, a lot of states and their family codes, there are just bad sections in them that don't make any sense that have unintended consequences. So right. you have a state legislator who, who knows, like they're a, they were a small business owner, they were an attorney, they were a teacher, they, they come from all different backgrounds. And it's very, very easy in terms of gaining political points to vote for the most stringent law. I'm sure that this law in the state of Washington was pitched extremely hard as protection for victims of domestic violence was a serious issue. Mm -hmm. But what the legislators didn't see in enacting it was the unintended consequences that will happen because this piece of law is now in place. Right. And they're also ignoring this thing that we are all that we keep talking about, which is the and and which, you know, Greg Ellis talked about a lot, too, which is the dirty little secret of false allegations of of violence and creating artificial high conflict divorce, creating these nightmare cluster profanity divorces. You that, can say fuck on here. <laughs> that that generate this that generate this giant mess that nobody can really sort out you know no one wants to acknowledge that's a truth that actually happens i mean so the washington state domestic the washington state um bench guide for judges so uh the domestic violence bench guide for judges so the so the judges training manual literally says that false allegations of domestic violence are are rare and effectively don't happen and and you've got you've got this entire side of the industry you've got you know people who are posing themselves off like this like um barry goldstein you know an attorney from new york who was suspended because he made false allegations uh in in a case because he made false statements and he was suspended by New York um, for five years. It's almost it's almost a disbarment. And then he reinvents himself as a domestic violence expert and travels around the country and and provides these opinions that you know false allegations don't happen. And yet Everybody knows it's the dirty little secret that they do. And then you get a legislature like the Washington State comes along, and what they're doing is like, well, they're going to try and address this piece of the problem without acknowledging that this piece of the problem might actually be generated by that giant elephant in the room that they're not paying attention to. Yeah, and it's and here's the thing. This, this is the thing. Once, they're, once laws end up on the books involving domestic violence, it's going to be nearly impossible to pull them back, at least through the legislature. Right. There's just, right. there, there's no, there's only extreme, only political suicide to right. come out and sponsor a bill to say, we don't want to be tough on domestic violence. Right. Who, wants so to come only, out, who wants to come out and say people lie about domestic violence because they want to yeah. get revenge against their ex? <laughs> what, Not a politician. Right. What politician wants to do that? What what politician wants to say, let's draft a bill to uh, to deal with the the person who makes false allegations of domestic violence and 
ruins their ruins their you know, their ex's lives. Let's let's draft a bill to address that problem. Let's make sure you know. Let's let's make that a crime. Let's 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 lock those people up. What? That's not going to happen, right? Because prosecutors' offices. So in, in my case, my my ex-wife filed filed enough false police reports that the police actually got in, in, interested, and they 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 submitted a case against her for false police reports. And it went to the prosecutor's office. The prosecutor's office declined charges. And and the the reality of the reason why the prosecutor's office declined charges is because they don't want to charge someone who's clearly committing the crime of filing false police reports, trying to frame their ex-husbands for violations they didn't do because they don't want to discourage other domestic violence victims from coming forward and reporting violations. I'm like, wait, what? We're not even talking about that. We're talking about people who actually commit the crime of filing a false police report. But the political reality is if you if you do the modern equivalent of crying wolf and saying domestic violence, the authorities treat you radically differently and they and they don't want to hold you responsible. Yeah, and I think for on the political landscape, and we spend a lot of time on this show talking about that, it, we live in a, a proverbial Twitter world when there right. needs to be the nuance of a book um, and not the 280 characters that everything must boil down to. So, I mean, right. is domestic violence a serious issue? Yes, and it's extremely serious Absolutely. when it occurs. Uh -huh. And both men and women are victims mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And we need laws to reflect that these mm -hmm. situations need to, mm -hmm. number one is our constitutional rights need to be mm -hmm. protected. Mm -hmm. And number two is we need laws on the books that mm -hmm. deal with the nuance of each situation. Sure. You're absolutely right. Domestic. I mean, so, yeah, and, and Greg Ellis goes into this in his book and the respondent, you know, and yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think everyone agrees domestic violence is a real issue and, and, and it needs to be addressed. But, you know, the U.S. Census Department and the DOJ, you know, the data from them shows that domestic violence has done nothing but fall since the 1980s or so. But meanwhile, during that time, so actual domestic violence has fallen in that time period. But meanwhile, the definition of what constitutes domestic violence has expanded to take in a whole range of otherwise fairly normative behaviors. Jenny Souk, a professor of law at Harvard Law, says that domestic violence is defined so broadly now that you can make the argument that it exists in almost every household. Yelling at, yelling at your spouse can be domestic violence. Getting frustrated and, and slamming a dish down on, on, uh, on, on the table or on the floor and having it break can be domestic violence, right? That, it, in that world, they they warp the thinking of the of their client into believing that they might be a, a victim of domestic violence when they're not. And <laughs> so, yeah, domestic violence is an actual issue. It absolutely is an actual issue, and it needs to be addressed, right? But the people who are out there making false allegations of domestic violence in order to in order to achieve an advantage. Not only are they victimizing their child, not only are they victimizing their ex, but they're victimizing the person who needs those services and isn't going to get them. Or or right, or or even so, even so, they're they're victimizing society on a sociological level as well because
people who would otherwise otherwise be receptive and sympathetic to a person who says they're a victim of domestic violence is going to be far less receptive to that now. I personally, when someone says to me, I was a victim of domestic violence because of my experience in this world and being falsely accused of all of this stuff, I think to myself and I go, you know what? I don't believe you unless you can show me some real evidence. Right? I, I think that uh, I, I would feel very much the same way uh, seen day in, day out. I would say that 75 to 80% of my clients have either been accused of domestic violence or have a domestic violence restraining order out against them. And I, I could honestly say I, I, I don't believe any of them had ever touched their spouse or threatened them in any, any meaningful way. The majority of them are bickering back and forth um, or saying something happened. Um, few of them, they called the police. Yep. And then, then, then it turns around two years later and the ex claims, oh, well, the police were called, but he called the police because you were an issue. Oh, no, no, no. But he was actually the problem. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and we have this preponderance of the evidence where I think you said it very well earlier. We have, if a judge gets it wrong, we have their name ends up in the paper Yep. in a domestic violence situation. If yep. They grant it and it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Not the only one, only party that's harmed in that is the one they granted it against in their child. And the courts don't want to acknowledge the damage they do to the child in that situation. Right. And they don't want to, also, they don't want to acknowledge the damage that they're doing to the parents too. And the problem, you know, the thing is, is they, they always think about, Oh, well, what if I get this wrong? And she needed this order to protect her. And this order would have caused her to live. Um, and you know she wouldn't, but they don't pay. A, 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 they don't pay, and and does that happen? Yes. Is it is it a huge problem? Meaning that it's it's got a lot of numbers behind it? No. And if you look at the numbers of of the opposite side of that problem, so here in Washington State, about a year ago, we had a psychologist in Bellingham, which is the large city to the north, um, a mom who uh, you know, was going through one of these high-conflict divorces that was that appears to be, I'm not positive about this, appears to have been largely fueled by um, um, uh, an attorney involved. Um, and she lost custody. She was going to have 50-50 custody. And she lost it, and she killed herself, and she killed her kids. Uh, there's a case in Bellevue of, um, of a man who a year and a half ago, just before COVID, he had been saying to everybody, Look, I think my ex-wife is unstable. He'd been telling the courts, opposing counsel, the GAL, the police, saying, I think she's unstable. Right? Meanwhile, they got this, they got these these attorneys going at it, creating this giant mess, right? Making everything worse, constantly escalating problems, not de-escalating problems. And he's looking at it going, I think she's unstable. He he wins he wins a, a custody motion. He's gonna get I don't remember if he's gonna get 50-50 custody, he was gonna get something, but he wins some custody motion. She hires young boys as hitmen. They go and they shoot this guy nine times. He lives. And he turns around. The first thing he does is he says to the police, he says, It wasn't the kids, it was my ex-wife. Right? John Mast last year. You know, do you know you know about the John Mast case, right? The yep. John Mast horrible custody fight fueled by both mental health issues by his ex-wife and probably got a hell of a lot worse because of the conflict creation inside of their divorce, right? 
horrible nightmare, never-ending divorce. Allegations goes on for years. He's finally cleared of everything. He's gonna go see and get his get his kids for his first visit in years. And instead of you know finding his kids, his father-in-law, ex-father-in-law, shows up. So the grandfather of his children, right, pulls out a gun and puts several bullets into him, and he dies on the scene. You know, so you know, does it happen that judges, you know, might not issue a domestic, might not issue an ex parte restraining order that that you know could result in a horrible tragedy? Absolutely, that happens, and that's a concern, right? But the other side of that problem also happens as well, where you come along and you create this giant clusterfuck divorce, you know, nothing but confusion. You never calm it down. You do nothing but pour fire on it, right? And problems happen from that. And and that's and that's unique. You know, there are studies after studies after studies in all, lots of places that show there are other ways to go about doing that. There was a Dutch study that found. That even when you take when you take parents that are very hostile to each other and you force them to work with each other and you give them a 50-50 custody agreement, that within within a few years, things have normalized and there is almost no problems between the parents and the kids have done better because there's nothing to fight about. And that's the exact opposite of American thinking on that. American thinking is, is that if the parents don't get along then what we're going to do is we're going to create a we're going to create a situation in which we're going to favor one parent over the other and all that does is perpetuate the conflict forever and so and it rewards the it rewards the parent who wants to say screw you i don't want to do anything with you i don't want to cooperate with you i don't want to co-parent with you i'm just going to be obstructionary and eventually the court's going to give me what i want that's completely insane yeah no and i mean we're starting in here in the united states I think uh, states are going to have a lot more trouble pushing back against 50-50 parenting as these statistics out of Kentucky keep coming out. Domestic violence down, uh, number of court hearings down, the number of settlements up, um, and then just the, the studies, the soft science studies that literally every single party that's involved when you, you put an equal and shared parenting plan in place improves. The presuming the they don't get buried presuming they don't get buried i mean if you if you take a look at what's happening between um uh uh jennifer Harmon and the people who are just trying to discredit her right so the, the entire domestic violence industry is trying to turn on her and stick knives in her back and say that that her research is not good research and it's 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 a continuation of the same argument that parental alienation is junk science that it's that the father's rights movement is misogynist that all we are is angry dads pissed off because we didn't do well in the divorce it's a continuation of that that entire line of thinking where they're going to discredit anybody who comes forward and says well no here's what's going on right you know um, there's there's no truth to this idea that that um, uh, uh, abusive uh, abusive fathers are gaining control of their children by falsely alleging parental alienation. That's one of the studies that's come out from from um, from Dr. Harmon. Dr. Harmon coming along and saying parental alienation is actual. It's real. It's a, a form of domestic violence against against 
the other parent. It's a form of child abuse of the child, and she's got hard social science for it. And what does she get? She gets attacked by the domestic violence industry that's trying to do that. But, you know, on the other side of the equation, that means that we have to stand up for these people. Right. We have to come out. We have to say, no, that's not that's not appropriate. You know, just like we've got to stand up to the unethical attorneys, you know, like, you know, and say, no, you know, your tactics, your behavior don't belong in our profession. You know, I, I know we need to I know we need to go and I'd like to skip to to something in, in, in our exhibits, because I think it's important. Yeah. If you could go straight to page 10. Oh, you're there. Page 10. All right. Let me get it. Let me get over here and navigate it. You might want to stop on page nine for just a quick moment. That's the Tennessee statute. That's the outline. That's where she forged the court's orders. And that's her in court. Isn't that nice? Wait, so did you pull your phone out and yep. snap a picture of her and she saw that? No, she never, she didn't see it. She didn't see it until it showed up in a motion because she, she didn't know. She she did that to me in a in, in a courtroom, um, filled with spectators. But she angled her paper in such a way so that it um, wouldn't be seen by them, right in front of judicial staff, just moments before the judge entered um, entered the courtroom. And I just happened to have my phone in my hand because I was looking up a, a statute. This is the day that she um, that she effectively stole sixty four thousand dollars from me by wrongfully garnishing it. Um, so she, uh, this is just moments after she's basically handed me a piece of paper telling me that she's, you know, ripped me off for a whole bunch of money. And, uh, she does this to me. And, um, so I catch a picture of it, but you know, we were talking about how, how, um, how, you know, bar associations sometimes don't do anything about that stuff. That's specifically unethical. I mean, there's like 20 cases about that, you know, that, that, that says that, you know, flipping someone off for an attorney to flip someone off is unethical. People have been suspended from the practice of law, but so far the Washington state bar association hasn't done anything about that. So anyway, um, so I, I, I uh, made this, uh, I made this slide um, today because I've been talking about it for a while. And, and I, I think a lot of other people talk about this as well, but they don't, I, I I've never seen it sort of laid out this, this, this clearly. Um, I think that, you know, when you wind up in these high conflict divorce cases and in parental alienation cases, what happens is that everybody gets forced to this, what I call the dark crossroads, where they've only got these four choices. That's it. You know, you, you don't have anything else, you know, right? You, you have to litigate, you know, which is standing up for yourself, standing up for your kids, right? You either got to lay down and take it and just be a victim, right? You know, you, you resort to violence, Right. Um, or you, you know, disappear, right? You become, you know, you become the deadbeat dad. And, and the real insidiousness of, of like, for instance, the Washington state, uh, um, you know, abusive litigation statute, um, or some of the, the gag orders that you see show up in cases, you know, or the, you know, litigation restraints against people who are trying to litigate and protect their rights. It's, what they're effectively trying to do is they're effectively trying to eliminate option number one, which is the option we want everyone to take. So what does that leave? Yeah. It's a scary thought um, if they continue to build up and, and we see the multiplication of, of statutes similar to Tennessee and Washington. 
yeah. um, to remove that number one um, doesn't leave any good options. No, it doesn't. So, you know, I, I know that we're going to wrap up our conversation here at some point soon. Um, turn to number 15, page 15. Just zip down to it. So, you know, um, you know, Chris Cole, that's the false one of the false police reports. That's the evidence that shows that I wasn't there. That's the memo that says that, uh, you know, they're not going to bring charges. So this is what I'm plugging. And I would invite you to go ahead and plug some version of this as well. You know, everywhere. Um, you know, Chris. Chris, I just watched. I just rewatched um, Chris's interview, and uh, Chris Cole, uh, you know, basically comes out and says, you know, find something that you can do, right? That you know helps move this along. And a lot of people are like, I don't know what the hell I can do about this thing, right? I'm not an attorney, you know. I, you know, I, I can't build on ethicalkarma.com. I can't, you know, I can't do the state of the, you know, family law, you know, courts things. Well, you know, but you know what you can do? You can, you can get, you can get off your lazy butt. You can go get yourself a piece of cardboard and a black marker and you can show up on parental alienation day in front of the largest courthouse that you can get to. Right. And you can stand there and you can protest this every year. Parental alienation day comes and goes. Right. And, you know, it's an opportunity for you to get out there and for you to, you know, do something about this. You know, you can, you can take a photo of yourself standing there, you know, standing up for your children, you know, and you can, you know, send it to your kids, even if you're putting it into the shoebox that you're going to give them to give, give to them when they're 18. Right. You know, you mm -hmm. can do that. Right. So um, you can turn that off now. So, I mean, I, I strongly encourage everybody, you know, on, on April 25th, 2022, I'm going to be standing in front of the King County courthouse in Seattle, Washington with a sign that looks a lot like that. Right. Everybody can do that. Everybody can, you know, can can make sure that their voice is heard in doing that. And if you show up at 9 a.m. in front of a courthouse, right, and then if you go to the largest courthouse that you can get to, hopefully what you know is you're going to find somebody else that's there, right? And you're going to make a new you're going to make a new parental alienation friend, right? And you know, and and with any luck, you're going to find a whole bunch of people over there. So yeah, something you got to do something. It can something. it can be. A Things that are that everyone has access to, participating in things like this, picking up your phone and calling your local legislators. I'm not saying that's gonna you and yourself are going to start the wave of new legislation, but I've heard so many stories in the last two to three months of individuals just picking up the phone and calling their local legislators, and within a couple of weeks, they're on the phone and, and the legislator spends an hour with them just listening to their story. And if we start more of us start doing that, this tidal wave that is coming is going to get here sooner. It's going to happen. This is an issue that it directly affects 49% of the population. But I, I would say that, I mean, indirectly, it could affect every single human being, whether you're a mom now and you're, you're a grandmother to a boy, or you end up in a relationship with someone that's going through this it directly affects 49% of the population indirectly has the possibility to impact everyone. Yeah. And, you know, and, and as we're finishing out, I want to, I want to say a couple of uh, things and I want to, so I think it's important for people to remember that um, the, the person that they were involved with um, must've been a, must've been a, an amazing person. Otherwise they wouldn't have been involved with them. 
my ex-wife was an amazing person and and i i i loved her and i i i miss my friendship with her and i you know i i i look at what's happened and i still think to myself how in the hell did did that happen right how did this person that i know become involved in this giant mess and you know so I, I think it's important for people who are involved in this to realize that while a lot of the responsibility, a lot of the responsibility for what's going on is, is both your ex's fault, fault. It's you have some responsibility as well. I've got a piece of the puzzle that I'm responsible for. And it's also the unethical bad apple attorneys. If you're in the sort of nightmare situation that I'm in, right, the unethical bad apple attorneys are a big problem. And uh, I know for a fact, you know that 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 this person has, you know, really screwed over my ex, my ex, my ex-wife, and and that's not right, and and um, it's important not to lose sight of the fact that the person that you knew and loved, right, is a human being, and that hopefully somehow you'll be able to find a way to reconnect with that human being. So, and then the last thing I'd kind of like to say is that, you know, I hope someday that my son, you know, watches this. I, I you know, I hope that, you know, I, I get to see him again and I get to have a relationship with him again. Um, you know, but, you know, even if that's not, even if that isn't what happens, I hope that he, that he watches this and he realizes that I love him and that I, you know, never gave up working to have a relationship with him. And, and I, and uh, you know i've taken steps to make sure that you know he will get that message even after i'm i'm gone right so it won't matter if i'm alive or dead when he turns 18 and everybody who's watching this right now and is listening to this um i would invite you to um you know you know go ahead and take steps so that you know your kid will know that even 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 if you're gone and longer term i actually have a plan for sort of how to help how to help people do that too about that some other time so i love very, you buddy very well said. I miss you. very well said thank you for that and, and thank you uh i think we we now officially have a new longest show ever we're we're closing in on an hour and 45 minutes a lot of great discussion tonight though uh I'm sorry thank you so much no I'm sorry. Perfectly fine sorry. thank you so much for coming on i appreciate it um everybody go visit Sean's new website, unethicalkarma.com, um, and check out the resources he is going to be providing there. Um, once again, Sean, thank you for coming on. I'm Mark Real. This is State of the Family Courts, and we will see everyone next Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific.